Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome, and the myths and legends of Europe. As I've said before, both of my podcasts are members of the History Podcasters Network. The network is a group of people who get together to share their love of history and their wish to communicate it. One of the projects we took on, which started a couple of years ago, is called the History Collage. Each collage is based on a theme, and history podcasters send short submissions in, which are then collated and broadcast. So far, there have been six topics. Unsung heroes, it seemed like a good idea at the time, terrible leaders, great women in history, alcohol, and the end of an era. This bonus episode is a compilation of my submissions to each of these topics. If you enjoy it, and I really hope you do, then please go to www.historypodcasters.com and download the episodes which give the submissions from all of my fellow history podcasters. I really hope you do, and if you do, please give us feedback, because anything is gratefully received. So, here we go with my submissions. Hi, I'm Paul Vincent. I host two weekly podcasts, The Myths and History of Ancient Greece and The Legends of King Arthur and His Knights. My unsung hero, though, is neither Greek nor from the tales of myth and legend. During the later years of the 4th century AD, the Roman Empire was in decline. The Goths inflicted upon it its most humiliating defeat for many years at the Battle of Adrianople, where the Emperor Valens was killed. This led to the accession of the last man to rule over a united empire, the Emperor Theodosius. He settled the marauding Goths inside Roman territory and turned them into allies and a source of troops for the army. It was a good and necessary policy at the time, but would prove to be one of the many causes of the eventual downfall of Rome. Theodosius was intelligent and energetic and his reign was a successful one. Sadly, when he died aged 48 in 395, he set in motion the events that would help lead to collapse. He split the empire into halves and put his two sons, Arcadius and Honorius, on the thrones. Arcadius in the east, ruling from Constantinople, and Honorius in the west, ruling from Italy. Neither son inherited one iota of his father's talents, and they were two of the most useless emperors the empire ever had. Neither had any real interest in ruling, and both became dominated by others. Honorius in the west fell under the control of the Germanic generals in the Roman army, a situation which carried on after his death, and for the remainder of the existence of the Western Roman Empire. In the east, however, the man who was the power behind Arcadius in the latter part of his reign was his Praetorian prefect, and it is he who is my unsung hero. Flavius Anthemius was the grandson of a previous Praetorian prefect, and rose to high office in the early years of Arcadius's reign. In 406 he was elevated to the rank of prefect, and became the power behind the throne. While the emperor, a pious Christian, concentrated on religious matters, Anthemius set out to stabilise the eastern half of the Roman Empire. When Arcadius died, aged just 31, in 408, Anthemius became the regent for the new emperor, Arcadius's seven-year-old son, Theodosius II. For the next six years, he was the true ruler of the eastern Roman Empire. His successes were numerous. He negotiated a peace treaty with the Persians, securing the empire's eastern border. He repelled a Hunnic invasion, he rebuilt the imperial fleet to protect against future invasions. In 408 there was a famine in Constantinople, 
when a lack of transport ships caused the grain supply from Egypt to fail to turn up in sufficient quantities. Anthemius quickly procured grain from elsewhere and then overhauled the logistical operations to guarantee sufficient future supplies from Egypt. Towards the end of his tenure, he even managed to create financial stability and cancelled all previous tax arrears. All these actions point to a dedicated and skilled administrator, but they do not make him a hero. That label can only be applied when success is profound and lasting. What makes him a hero is his conception, design and implementation of something truly magnificent and vitally important, both then and now. He was responsible for the building of the famous walls around the city of Constantinople. There is some debate as to whether Anthemius began this mighty project during the reign of Arcadius or early in that of his successor. Either way, by 413 the walls were complete. They were a truly magnificent sight. The land wall stretched for five and a half kilometres from the Sea of Marmara to the suburb of Blackanay near the Golden Horn. The wall was 13 metres over 40 feet high and had 96 towers. A sea wall was also constructed around the entire coastline of the city. To the weaponry and technology available at the time, the walls were genuinely impregnable. After an earthquake in the mid-400s damaged the wall, it was patched up and a lower outer wall was also constructed. This double barrier strengthened the already formidable fortification. Anthemius, of course, didn't live to see this addition to his great project. The Praetorian prefect disappears from the historical record in 414. Maybe he died, maybe he was ousted by the machinations of the emperor's elder sister Pulcheria, who dominated Theodosius II for the rest of his long reign. The walls kept invaders out of Constantinople for 800 years. The city was besieged numerous times. Huns, Persians, Slavs, Arabs, Bulgars, Rus and many others tried to capture it, but none succeeded. In 1204, the Knights of the Fourth Crusade managed to take the city by scaling the sea walls from their ships, but their rule lapsed into chaos, and the Emperor Michael VIII retook the city for the Empire in 1261. The land walls were not breached until that fateful day in May 1453, when the Turks, under the command of Mehmet II, employed the largest cannons ever known. Finally, technology had caught up with Anthemius's great project, and the walls were no longer up to the job. They had stood, protecting the great city from all invaders, for over a thousand years. The immense value of the great walls of Constantinople is still with us today. When the city fell, scholars poured out and made their way to Western Europe, bringing with them ancient texts long since forgotten in the West. Scientists, philosophers, historians and many others arrived in Italy and began translating great literature and philosophical and scientific texts. The scholars of the Italian Renaissance were reintroduced to Plato and Aristotle. The great works of Homer and Herodotus and other Greek and Roman writers became available to a much wider audience as the peoples which had been part of the old Western Roman Empire were reintroduced to their heritage. It is going too far to say that the exodus from Constantinople was responsible for the Renaissance. The process was already well underway. But the sudden appearance of scholars and teachers certainly gave it a huge boost. Western Europe's development continued apace and it became the centre of the movement towards modernisation and industrialisation. Anthemius's walls were strong enough to keep the cultural centre of the Eastern Roman Empire safe for a thousand years. As all around it collapsed into anarchy and new empires rose and fell, 
the walls kept the armies of the barbarians and neighbouring civilizations out of Constantinople. If they hadn't, then maybe the years of learning housed within them would have been destroyed, just as happened in Rome and many other cities. By the time the city fell, Western Europe was ready to receive what it had to offer. And why is Anthemius an unsung hero? Well, he is not even named for his great project. The Emperor Theodosius II was on the throne when the walls were completed. The great fortifications are, and always will be, known as the Theodosian Walls, but really they should be the Anthemian Walls. Large sections of them are still there today. They are a majestic sight, and one can't help being overwhelmed by their scale. Their mighty presence is a testimony to the drive and foresight of Flavius Anthemius. If you've enjoyed this and would like to listen to my podcasts, then please go to iTunes or to www.mythandhistory.podbean.com. I hope you do, and if you do, I'll be speaking to you soon. Hi, I'm Paul Vincent. I'm the host of two podcasts, one on the myths and history of Greece and Rome, and the other on the legends of King Arthur. History is full of examples of disastrous popular coups. An unpopular leader is jettisoned from office and replaced by a champion of the people. The champion of the people turns out to be hundreds of times worse than what went before. In some cases, this has led to catastrophe and a situation unthinkable a few years before the event. Jumping on the bandwagon of a popular uprising can often seem like a good idea at the time. It very often isn't. The Byzantine Empire was in turmoil at the end of the 11th century. The disastrous Battle of Manzikert had led to the loss of most of Asia Minor, the heartland of the empire. Things picked up in the 12th century, though. The great Alexius Comnenus revived the fortunes of the staggering empire and regained much territory. His son, John the Beautiful, continued this progress, and then his grandson, Manuel I, made some further gains. Manuel, though, was a bit too ambitious for his own good, and he made a couple of big mistakes. He spent too much money, and he concentrated his attention in the West, when consolidating the gains in the East would have proved far more advantageous in the long term. And therein lay the crux of the problem. Manuel's outlook was too Western. His wife was a Latin, not a Greek, and at one point he even hinted towards a reunification of the Eastern Orthodox Church with the Church of Rome. This was a complete no-no for the people of Constantinople and the Byzantine world. When Manuel died in 1180, his 11-year-old son Alexius came to the throne. The young man's regent was his mother, Mary of Antioch. The regency started with Mary granting extra rights to Latin merchants and giving important advisory roles to pro-Latin statesmen. Unrest was rife. The people were not happy. Revolution was in the air, and all they needed was someone to rally around. Enter Andronicus Comnenus. He was a first cousin to the recently dead Manuel, and was living in exile on the Black Sea coast. Andronicus was right up the Byzantine street. He was 64, but still in magnificent physical shape. He was a highly successful womaniser, and his exploits were known throughout the empire. He had an affair with his own cousin, Eudocia. He deserted a military command in order to seduce the lovely Philippa of Antioch. He was exiled for taking as his mistress another of his cousins, Theodora, widow of King Baldwin III of Jerusalem. Andronicus was not just a womaniser, though. 
He was known to be almost entirely fearless to the point of recklessness, and not one to back away from a fight if a fight was needed. So, Andronicus looked exactly like an emperor should look, and the people flocked to his cause. The people of the Byzantine Empire had made their decision, and it seemed like a good one. Andronicus Comnenus marched on Constantinople, and in September 1183 was crowned co-emperor with his now 13-year-old nephew. Two years later, the man history knows as Andronicus the Terrible was dead, and he wasn't simply executed. The feelings against him were so strong that he suffered probably the most tortuous death in Byzantine history, and that is saying something. A henchman was sent to arrest a cousin of his, one Isaac Angelus. Isaac managed to kill the man, and fearing for his life, fled to the Hagia Sophia and appealed to the people. He was carried forward on a wave of resentment and terror and proclaimed emperor. Andronicus Comnenus was captured as he tried to escape. Andronicus the Terrible got what was coming to him. First he had his right hand cut off and was thrown into prison. After a few days without food or water, he was dragged out. He was blinded in one eye and then strapped to the back of the mangiest camel that his captors could find. Then he was given to the mob. They pulled him from the camel and tied him to a post. His hair and teeth were pulled out and boiling water was poured on him. He was constantly goaded with swords and spikes and pelted with unimaginable filth, both animal and human. According to the historian Nicetus, he constantly cried out to God while he was being tortured, saying over and over again, O Lord, have pity on me. Why do you trample a poor reed who is already broken? After about three days, he finally died and was torn apart by the mob. So, how had he gone from people's champion to mob fodder in just two years? Well, first he allowed a massacre of Latins within Constantinople. This was probably fine with the Byzantines, as Latin-hating was one of the reasons for the coup in the first place. It was, though, an example of the brutality to come. Next, he put his co-emperor to death, and then married the twelve-year-old who had been betrothed to the young Alexius. This probably wasn't too much of a problem for the people, and was par for the course when it came to usurpation. Next he reformed the administration and rooted out corruption wherever he found it. This was definitely a good thing. Although it was carried out very violently, it was generally a popular measure. So, things were going well, if a little bloodily. Unfortunately, Andronicus had so much blood on his hands that he began to see conspiracy everywhere. As is so often the case, a man begins to exercise his power well, removing corruption, then he himself becomes corrupted by the power and turns it on the people who had given it to him in the first place. All of the recklessness and impetuousness which had been so attractive in his younger days were let loose on the citizens of the empire. Andronicus began to eliminate any noble who might try to challenge him. This probably went down okay with the population as a whole, but Andronicus was soon finding people to execute at every level of society. Three cities, Nicaea, Lepadium and Prusa, revolted, and Andronicus rode to put the rebellions down. Nicaea defended itself, rallying behind Isaac Angelus. Andronicus responded by having Isaac's mother brought from Constantinople and strapped to the bashing end of his battering ram. After a short siege, the Nicaeans realised they couldn't win, and the women and children came out to beg the emperor's mercy. He pretended to have compassion, but as soon as he had control of the city, he massacred many of the men and sent many of the survivors into exile. He then laid siege to Prusa and Lepadium. 
The leaders were strung up as an example of what happens to traitors. Men killed in the fighting were refused burial and left to rot in the sun. The revolt simply convinced Andronicus that he was right to be paranoid. The witch hunts were ratted up a few notches. People were killed, blinded, or if they were lucky, exiled for the merest whiff of anti-regime sentiment. Interesting methods of torture and murder were found. People were roasted alive on spits or strung up to dehydrate on grapevines. Even Andronicus's own henchmen were not safe. One offhand comment could result in an accusation of treason and a shockingly violent punishment. In 1185, the second city of the empire, Thessalonica, was taken by the Normans. Andronicus sent armies to respond, but his paranoia at home grew. Nicetus puts it beautifully. A day on which he ordered no one's death was for him a day wasted. In September, with the Norman armies advancing, Andronicus ordered the killing of all people who were in prison for any kind of sedition or treason, and the arrest of anyone else who might even be thinking about rebellion. One of these men was Isaac Angelus. Isaac resisted and set in train the events which led to the overthrow and death of Andronicus the Terrible. As it happens, Isaac Angelus was an even worse emperor, weak, greedy and grandiose. He was overthrown by his brother, possibly a still worse leader. The disastrous 18-year reign of the Angelus family ended with the taking of Constantinople by the warlords of the Fourth Crusade. The city was occupied for 57 years before being reclaimed for the Byzantines by Michael Paleologus. The empire, though, never really recovered and went into terminal decline once Michael had died. The championing of Andronicus Comnenus probably seemed like a great idea at the time. Two years later, it had been clear that it definitely wasn't. Thousands of people died at the hands of this charismatic, charming, brutal and psychotic man, and the repercussions lasted for hundreds of years. If you've enjoyed this, then please go to www.mythandhistory.podbean.com where you'll get my regular podcasts. So, hopefully, I'll be speaking to you again soon. Hi, I'm Paul. I host The Legends of King Arthur and His Knights and The Myths and History of Greece and Rome, which is, of course, liberally scattered with terrible leaders. The Roman Empire, like most other states through the ages, experienced a number of short-lived reigns. Most of the time, when a leader doesn't last very long, it's not down to his or her own actions. Maybe like the Emperor Aemilius Aemilianus, the ruler was proclaimed unexpectedly and never had time to take control before the next one came along. Maybe like poor young Edward V of England, the ruler was too young to rule in his own right and fell victim to the machinations of his family without ever really being in charge. Maybe, like the unfortunate US President William Henry Harrison, the ruler simply died a few weeks after taking the helm. All of these men were unlucky. Like most short-lived rulers, they never had the chance to show whether they were any good. It's therefore a stupendous achievement for a leader to last less than a year and for the seeds of his downfall to be entirely of his own making. So, our congratulations go to Servius Sulpicius Galba, 6th Emperor of Rome. If a leader's primary role is to do right by the people, a certain gift for self-preservation is also a key attribute. Galba did neither, and he did neither in a spectacularly impressive way. Galba, born in 5 BC, 
was from an ancient senatorial clan and due to the patronage of various members of the Julio-Claudian family was very rich. He was quite well thought of by the emperors Tiberius and Claudius and they advanced his career. He was consul in 33 and governor of Africa by 45. Nero appointed him as governor of Hispania Tarraconensis, one of the provinces of Spain. And this is where he was when he was asked to play a lead role in the coup against the emperor. Everyone assumed that Galba would make a great emperor, except the troops on the Rhine who knew him to be humorless, strict and severe. The Senate thought well of him. He was 72 years old and had vast experience of governing provinces. He was likely to be a safe pair of hands, and after Nero, a safe pair of hands was what was needed. His accession to the imperial role was unopposed, particularly when a supporter of his offered the Praetorian Guard a donative, a large sum of money to each man, to support him. He turned out to be a really unsafe pair of hands. Galba did not have a politically savvy bone in his body, was mean both materially and in spirit, and murderously severe. Politically, he made mistakes from the outset. Next door to the territory he had been governing was the province of Lusitania. The governor of this less important region was Marcus Salvius Otho. Otho made it clear to Galba he was behind him all the way and hinted that the childless old man should make him his heir. Otho was popular and reasonably well thought of and the arrangement would have suited them both. Galba, though, chose a man called Piso instead. Thus he set one of his greatest supporters against him. Having alienated his provincial political support, Galba then incensed the Praetorian Guard by refusing to pay the donative. He famously commented, I choose my soldiers, I do not buy them. The very men who would be there to protect him now hated him for his stinginess. Still, most of the rest of the army were behind him. Behind him, that is, until he arrived in Italy and immediately disbanded a marine regiment formed by Nero after his own men were involved in a scuffle with them. Galba ordered his men to charge the marines when they refused to disperse. Many were killed and the survivors were collected together and decimated. That is, literally, decimated. One in ten were killed as a punishment and an example to the others. The new emperor then managed to rile the very people who had ratified his accession by demanding that people give back to the state any gifts they had received from Nero. Financial prudence was necessary after the excesses of the previous emperor, but grabbing from the important wealthy members of society when your rule is young is bound to generate resentment and is foolish in the extreme. Galba had the governor of one of the provinces of Germania assassinated and replaced him with Aeolus Vitellius, one of his own supporters. Vitellius was weak and lax, and the Rhine regions loved him for it. And, of course, they couldn't stand Galba. They declared their new food-and-drink-loving governor, emperor, and began to march towards Rome to depose the hated Galba. Meanwhile, Otho, overlooked as Galba's heir, was getting desperate. He had been currying favour with the Praetorians by splashing the cash in the expectation he'd be able to replenish his personal coffers when he became emperor. Now that this was a non-starter, he was heavily in debt and had no means of acquiring the wealth necessary to repay his creditors. Desperation promotes desperate measures. Otho went to the Praetorian camp and had no trouble whatsoever persuading them to ditch mean old Galba and support him. Thus, Galba had two heavily armed forces in rebellion against him. It was just a question of which one would get to him first. 
As it happens, the Praetorians ambushed him and Piso in the Forum. They cut off their heads and took them to Otho in the Praetorian barracks. There, legend has it, the heads were kicked around the camp as part of some sort of macabre game. Servius Sulpicius Galba became Emperor of Rome by the common consent of most of the important interested parties in the Empire. Entirely by his own doing, his severed head was being used as a football just seven months later. A genuinely terrible leader. If you've enjoyed this, then please head on down to www.mythandhistory.podbean.com where you'll find my other podcasts. If you do, great, and I'll speak to you then. Hi, my name's Paul Vincent. I present two podcasts, one on the myths and history of ancient Greece and Rome, and the other on the legends of King Arthur and his knights. In the ancient world, women were generally regarded as second-class citizens. Ancient Rome was no different. It never had a female emperor. It had plenty of empresses, wives of emperors, but no woman ever ruled in her own right. The first actual female ruler of the empire was the disastrous Irene in the very late 700s AD, and by that time Rome was lost and the remaining lands had morphed into what we now call the Byzantine Empire. Nope, in ancient Rome, if a woman wanted to exercise power, then she had to do it from behind the scenes. Political influence could only be wielded with the agreement or through the manipulation of a male relative. The most famous of these behind-the-scenes power holders is Livia, wife of Augustus. In reality, though, her influence over the course of events at the highest level was limited. Augustus was really in charge. In the late 100s AD, though, a remarkable family of women from Emesa in Syria had real power. They presided over the last of the good years, the last of the times when Rome was the strongest and unchallenged ruler of the known world. Once they were gone, the rot set in, and the 50 years known as the Crisis of the 3rd Century changed the empire forever. Sometime around 180, a moderately powerful Roman general arrived in Syria and saw the woman who changed his life. She was the daughter of Bassianus, a hereditary high priest of the sun god Heliogabalus. The general was married at the time, and the girl was only 11 or 12 years old, but he cultivated his relationship with the family. He learned that there had been a prophecy that the girl would one day marry a king. The general was only middle-ranking, but he was ambitious, and he decided that being a king sounded like a great idea. The young girl grew up, and the general's wife conveniently died. The two were married in 187. Six years later, the prophecy came true. Her name was Julia Domna. His was Lucius Septimius Severus, and in 193 AD, he became Emperor of Rome. Julia was given the title Augusta, the greatest honour an empress could receive. Their marriage was highly unusual among the powerful of the time. Severus respected his wife immensely and sought her opinion on matters of state. Better than that, he actually listened to her, and she became his most important adviser. Despite the political machinations of Severus's Praetorian prefect Plautianus, she remained prominent and respected throughout his reign. Julia Domna was also a highly educated and intellectual woman. She had a deep interest in philosophy and learning, and many of the leading intellectuals of the day were in her inner circle. The famous lawyer, Ulpian, was a close confidant, as were the historian Cassius Dio and the philosopher Philostratus. While Severus got on with fighting wars, which is what interested him the most, 
Julia exercised governing power quietly but effectively and improved the lot of the learned men of the empire. She even managed to find time to give birth to two sons, known to history as Caracalla and Geda. When Severus died in 211, he urged his two sons to work together to rule the empire. Get on with each other, enrich the soldiers and scorn all other men, he famously advised them. Sadly, the two brothers hated each other and plans were laid to divide the empire between them. The chief opponent of this plan was their mother. And how do you intend to divide your mother's body between you? she asked. Julia Domna's influence was so great the plan was shelved. The joint rule, though, lasted less than a year before the two boys were at each other's throats. Julia tried to arrange a conference between them to thrash out their differences. It was not a great success. The meeting ended with a weeping Julia cradling the dead body of her younger son, killed by men loyal to the elder. Caracalla's men had been so violent in their slaying of Gedda they had even injured Julia as she tried to save him. Despite Gedda's death, Julia's commitment to the empire remained strong, and she continued to wield power during Caracalla's six-year reign, especially after he lost interest in ruling, becoming keener on cruelty. He was quite unsurprisingly assassinated in 217. The new emperor, Macrinus, sent Julia back to Emesa, where it is thought she committed suicide. And there it may have ended, except that there were more Julias from Syria and they weren't too keen on giving up power. Julia Mesa was five years older than her sister, Julia Domna. By the time Caracalla was killed, she was a widow with two daughters, Julia Semes and Julia Mamia. Each daughter had a son. Julia Mesa began to spread rumours that the elder of her grandsons was actually the son of Caracalla. Macrinus was becoming unpopular and his lowly birth didn't help. The Severan Julias worked tirelessly to bring people over to their side. When they were sure they had enough supporters, they entered the camp of a friendly legion and marched on Macrinus. His troops, unwilling to fight against the rightful ruling Severans, deserted him and changed sides. Julius Amais' 14-year-old son became the emperor Elagabalus. Julia Mamia's 10-year-old boy was renamed Alexander Severus and he was made Caesar and heir. Unfortunately, Elagabalus was a bit of a weirdo. He spent his time wearing makeup and women's clothes and shocking and irritating the Senate and the people in general. His short four-year reign was ended when the strange teenager was murdered in favour of his younger cousin. Julia Mesa had found Elagabalus uncontrollable and offensive and supported the young Alexander Severus instead. Elagabalus and his mother were killed in rioting. Julia Mesa died three years into the reign of her younger grandson and the power behind the throne Baton passed to Julia Mamia, Alexander's mother. Julia Mamia would have made a great emperor. She surrounded her son with wise advisers and taught him how to behave with dignity and wisdom. For a while, the last of the Julias was the de facto ruler of the Roman world and she ruled it well. Unfortunately, the Parthian Empire on Rome's eastern border was experiencing a resurgence. When Alexander Severus was just 21, he had to go east and fight a war against their well-organised and powerful neighbours. Julia Mamia accompanied him everywhere, and while she pulled the strings of power, things went reasonably well. The soldiers, though, couldn't get used to this young, studious but inexperienced emperor who did what Mummy told him to do. Led by the huge, grizzled commander, Maximinius Thrax, they stormed the young man's tent and murdered the emperor and his mother. The Severan Julias held power and influence at the highest level in Rome for over 30 years. 
Given that they were both female and Syrian, this was a truly remarkable achievement. They didn't do everything right, and they didn't always back the correct horse. Their drive and tenacity, though, were unwavering. Had they been men, they may have founded a dynasty that stood the test of time and averted the disaster of the 3rd century crisis. Instead, Rome suffered for the folly of ignoring the talents of 50% of its population. If you've enjoyed this, then please pop along to www.mythandhistory.podbean.com where you'll find my other podcasts. If you do, and I hope you do, I'll speak to you then. Hi, my name's Paul Vincent and I host the podcast The Myths and History of Greece and Rome. The consumption of alcoholic beverages stretches back into the time long before recorded history. The drinking of mead, beer or wine is so old that it even plays a key role in the mythology of the ancient civilizations. Most of the mythological pantheons contain a god of wine or beer or of the excesses caused by the overconsumption of either. There are also many stories from the myths of the use of alcohol or the effects of drunkenness. These just go to prove that men and women have been drinking and getting drunk for thousands of years. It's interesting to contrast the types of alcoholic beverages which play their roles in the different cultures. Europe, for instance, is split along a north-south divide into wine drinkers and beer drinkers. The climate of the continent means that grapes will only grow in the sunnier south. The colder, harsher north is unsuitable for the vine but perfect for growing the crops which form the raw materials for beer. This is reflected in the different alcoholic mythologies of the Greeks and the Norse. According to Greek mythology, wine was invented accidentally by Dionysus, son of Zeus. Dionysus came from the kind of background that would lend itself to going off the rails in later years. He was the son of the king of the gods and Semele, a mortal daughter of King Cadmus of Thebes. He was born prematurely after his mother was given a fright by Zeus's wife Hera, and had to be sewn into Zeus's thigh in order to be carried to term. He later had to be turned into a ram in order to save him from being killed by Hera. Definitely the product of a broken home, he went on to be an extreme party animal. When he grew up, Dionysus began to experiment with intoxicating substances and discovered he could make a great new mind-altering drink with grapes. Deciding he was on to a good thing, he called the new drink wine and proceeded to introduce it across the Mediterranean world, teaching the men how to make it. And thus, Dionysus is the god of wine and intoxication, among other things. He travelled around with a retinue of mad party-goers, including some frenzied women called maenads, and some male lovers of women and wine called satyrs. Thus the alcohol of Greek mythology was wine. The Norse, on the other hand, had an entirely different drink at the heart of their myths. Mead is an alcoholic drink made from fermented honey, usually mixed with various fruits, spices, grain or hops. When mixed with hops, it takes on a more bitter flavour. In this form, mead was the precursor to that northern European drink, beer. In North mythology, Gvassar was created as the wisest of all men. Sadly, he wasn't wise enough to prevent himself being murdered by two dwarfs, wonderfully known as the Deceiver and the Screamer. These two mixed the blood of the dead wise man with honey and fermented it into mead, the gods soon realised they hadn't seen wide old Kvassar for a while, and so they asked the two dwarfs where he was. They were told he had choked on his own wisdom. Odin didn't believe this somewhat glib tale for a moment. Flushed with their success, the two dwarfs proceeded to kill a giant. 
Here, though, they ran out of luck. The giant's son, Suttunger, found out what had happened. He was only persuaded not to exact a terrible revenge when he was offered the mead. He spared the dwarfs and carried the drink away to be guarded by his daughter, Gunnlod. Odin tricked Gunnlod into giving him some of the mead. When he was discovered, he changed himself into an eagle and flew back to Asgard. Thus, alcohol was introduced to the Norse gods. Before long, the sea god Aegir became their official brewer. So, the Greeks have a myth for the discovery of wine, and the Norse have one for mead or beer. Both mythologies also contain many tales about the effects of their chosen drink. Wine played a key role in the eventually successful journey home from Troy of the great hero Odysseus. Early in their voyage, Odysseus and his men landed in Thrace. There they were set upon by the locals, but being battle-hardy veterans they made short work of their attackers. They spared the priest of Apollo, Maron, who gave them ten jars of incredibly strong wine as a token of his gratitude. Not long after their ill-fated landing in Thrace, the travellers landed on an island full of sheep. It looked idyllic and they went ashore. Odysseus and twelve of his men searched the island until they came upon a cave full of lambs, cheese and milk. Thinking their luck was in, they tucked into a hearty meal. They soon realised their luck wasn't in when the cave entrance darkened as a massive one-eyed man approached it. Needless to say, the Cyclops was not remotely pleased to see the men. So displeased was he that he picked up two of them, pulled off their arms and legs and ate them. Then he pushed an almighty boulder to block the cave entrance and settled down for a rest. Odysseus was about to pull out his sword and kill the giant, when he realised he'd better not, as they'd never be able to move the boulder, and thus would be trapped forever. A day or so later, after another four men had been consumed, Odysseus had a plan. Have some wine with your meal, he said, and handed the Cyclops one of the jars. The giant did, and he loved it. He consumed the lot. It really was incredibly strong wine, and the Cyclops was by no means immune. He was soon very, very drunk. Not long later, he was blind drunk, literally. When he had passed out, Odysseus and his men rammed a sharpened stake into his single eye. The giant roared in pain and felt around for his attackers, but they were safely hidden. In the morning, the poor blind Cyclops rolled the boulder away as usual and stood at the entrance to his cave, thinking he would catch the men on the way out despite his blindness. Odysseus had one more trick up his sleeve, though. He and his men clung onto the underside of the largest sheep and were silently carried out. They escaped, and they'd used alcohol to do it. The tale from Norse mythology is somewhat different, but we can all relate to the unwelcome drunken guest. Aegir, brewer to the gods, held a feast. Most of the gods attended, only Thor was noticeably absent. The ale flowed and the merriment was high. Everyone praised the hospitality of Aegir's servants, Fimafeng and Eldir. Everyone, that is, except the god Loki. The drunken Loki was extremely jealous of the praise being heaped upon mere servants, and he drew his sword and killed Fimafeng. The gods quite understandably threw him out. But he came back. Not only that, he invoked the rules of hospitality and demanded a seat. After being told he wasn't welcome, he went further. He reminded Odin of a solemn oath that they had sworn that they would drink together. Odin reluctantly agreed, and Loki proceeded to get even drunker. And he wasn't a nice, amiable drunk. Like the uncontrollable party nightmare we've all encountered, he managed to insult virtually everyone at the party. He was particularly venomous towards Freya and Frigg. 
questioning their morals in a most unsavoury manner. At one point, he accused poor Freya of sleeping with every god and elf gathered in the hall. Heimdall shouted at him that he was drunk and he should just shut up. Only when Thor turned up and threatened him with a bashing from his hammer, Mjolnir, did Loki finally leave. He was still insulting his host as he fled. Loki didn't escape, though. Before long, Thor caught up with him, and he was bound to three slabs of rock with the entrails of his son. A venomous snake was fastened to a stalactite, so its poison dripped on Loki's face. And there he stayed, writhing in agony with such force that the earth shook. And there, in a nutshell, is the story of the consumption of alcohol, be it wine, beer, or anything else. The vast majority, like Aegir's guests, enjoy it and have a good time, but there will always be one, like Loki, who simply can't take it, or someone, like Odysseus, who uses it against another. It was ever thus. If you've enjoyed this, then please go to my website, www.mythandhistory.podbean.com, where you'll find the myths and history of Greece and Rome. I hope you do, and if you do, I'll speak to you again soon. Hi, my name's Paul Vincent. I host two bi-weekly podcasts, one on the myths and history of Greece and Rome, and the other on the myths and legends of Europe. Here, we're currently running through the story of Robin Hood. The end of an era in human history usually corresponds with the beginning of a new one, sometimes better, sometimes worse, but definitely new and different. This is no less important in the world of art. Art, particularly painting, was the way people expressed their feelings and views on the world before printing and better education made the written word more accessible to the masses. The Italian Renaissance is by far the most important part of the cultural explosion of the Middle Ages. It represents the beginning of an era, but also the end of a previous one. As with all of these things, it's far too hard to pinpoint the true turning point, but there's some mileage in identifying the difference between two highly celebrated but very different artists as being the true moment of change. Giotto di Bondone, better known to the world simply as Giotto, was born some 35 miles north of Florence in 1266 or 1267. Giorgio Vasari, in his famous work The Lives of the Artists, tells us he was a shepherd boy, happy and clever. His artistic talent was discovered by the Florentine painter Cimabue, who saw him draw the most lifelike pictures of sheep. Giotto is seen by most to be the greatest artist of the pre-Renaissance or early Renaissance period. His religious depictions are stunningly beautiful. Even highly unreligious people like me can't fail to be affected by the stunning Ognisanti Madonna, which hangs in the Uffizi in Florence. As an aside, even if you have virtually no interest in Renaissance art, go to the Uffizi. Its setting, as well as its collection, is absolutely stunning. What is truly remarkable about Giotto is that he manages to portray emotion and depth in a painting which, to all observation, appears entirely flat. The halos around the saintly figures are completely circular, even though the figures are seen side on. When you look hard, the lack of perspective is glaring. So we have to take our hats off to Giotto for managing to move us, make us feel, while portraying his subjects in a manner which must be described as unrealistic. There aren't many paintings still in existence which can definitely be attributed to Giotto, but his influence can be seen on the artists, some of which were nearly as good, who came after him. 
his style is clearly reflected in the works of those who followed. And this style, a mixture of Gothic and Byzantine, with some real heartstring tugging thrown in, changed very little until the early 15th century. Because of this new emotional style, which carried on through the High Renaissance and into modern work, Giotto is known as the father of the Renaissance. But there was still something missing. Although Giotto and his followers' works spoke to people in a way that painting hadn't before, it was still very stylized. The figures were still flat on the canvas, the buildings had no depth. In the early 1400s, all that changed. The era ended. Suddenly, something new and different arrived. Tommaso di Ser Giovanni di Simone was born in 1401. This painter, better known to the world as Masaccio, according to Vasari, was the best painter of his generation. This is certainly a huge accolade, but perhaps it isn't enough. It wouldn't be overstating things to say that this man, who died at the age of 28, ended the era of flat painting. What Masaccio gave the world was three dimensions. Well, three dimensions already existed in the real world, of course, but Masaccio transferred them to canvas. Masaccio, from a very early age, was not content with Giotto's figures. Instead, he discovered how to make the faces of his subjects look three-dimensional. Suddenly, a whole new range of emotion was available. Where Giotto could portray a tearful face, which he did with great skill, Masaccio could depict real anguish. But it wasn't only the depiction of faces that the great Florentine revolutionised. He developed the use of perspective so that at last buildings and landscapes looked real. Further away parts of a church seemed to disappear into the background. It must have seemed to the viewer that they could walk into the scene. It is impossible for us to imagine how this must have shocked the public, or the few members of the public who had enough to eat to enjoy art. It must have seemed as if it was magic. Around 1427, Masaccio won a prestigious commission to produce a holy trinity for the Dominican church of Santa Maria Novella in Florence. This fresco, considered by many to be Masaccio's masterwork, is the earliest surviving painting to use systematic linear perspective. The figure of Christ on the cross, with God behind him, is depicted in front of perfectly rendered architecture, with a vanishing point at eye level. It is truly stunning. One of Masaccio's last paintings hangs in the National Gallery in London. It's a very simple, but hugely powerful rendition of St Jerome and John the Baptist. Masaccio's unnerving skill at portraying emotion in the human face by making them appear 3D, is remarkable in this work. Masaccio ended an era in art, but this was no bad thing. He helped unleash the Italian Renaissance in all its glory on Europe. In the next 200 years, his revolutionary techniques would be expanded and improved by many of the most famous names in art. It is Masaccio's ending of an era, and beginning of a new one, which led, with many twists and turns, to the paintings which fill the world's greatest collections today.